Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I'm uh, sending my arms across the ocean to uh, to the US of A to speak to Carrie Brown. Hello, Carrie. Good morning, good afternoon. Good evening, even. <laughs> True. The, the lights are on in this house, I can tell you. It's gone dark. We are, we are officially winter now. It is the same here, actually. It's a little disturbing. I go out at four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon, and the sun's gone down, and it's starting to get dark, and, and that's just not cool. But it's Southern California, so it's hard to complain too much. I was going to say, your cool and my cool are probably very different. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, look, we've come together to talk about uh, your experiences and, and observations of the recent American film market. But uh, before we get into that, let's let's talk about why you were there. So, what what what's what's your what are you writer, director, writer, producer? I am primarily uh, heretofore primarily a writer. Okay. Uh, but I have begun to move more into producing. It's kind of, especially in the independent market, it's it's sort of a, a self-preservation uh, move. Uh, mm-hmm. The reality is. Uh, that in, as a writer, the um, you know kind of the the old system of the studios picking up spec scripts and and things like that. Um, it's a very very different world as a writer these days, and it's very very difficult to operate in that world unless you're one of a handful of, of very prominent writers. Um, and so, so I've begun to move more into producing as well as writing. I've produced a couple of shorts to this point. I've I've Worked as an associate producer on a on a bigger film, uh, still independent, but but yeah. uh, an act feature, and uh, and most recently. So the reason I was at AFM is in addition to having written the script for this project, uh, I was there as a producer trying to. Uh, Oh, the, the always joyful task of trying to find money. money. Um, yeah, so, so um, you know, kind of going in with a particular, knowing that I wasn't going to come out of AFM with money, and, and there's reasons for that that we will certainly get into, but, um, but sort of going in, laying the groundwork then for, for finding, uh, finding the money afterwards. So I've got a, I've got a feature 
um, that we are in the development stage of. It's a it's a thriller, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not uh, it's not a horror. I, I write a fair amount of horror, but I also write a lot of a lot of thrillers and more more kind of contemporary um, contemporary thrillers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this particular one is a. Um, a uh, thriller set in Mexico City about a um, former Mexican diplomat who l- loses his job, loses his career, loses his family, ends up working as a on a at a golf resort back in Mexico City and ends up kidnapping an American businessman um, and holding him for ransom in a, a kind of a, a a desperate attempt to buy his buy his old life back and get his family back and things wow. like that. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. It was a, a we've got a wonderful director attached, and actually he's the one that brought the idea to me. He's a gentleman I've worked with in the past, a guy named yeah. Gabriel Aristein. Mm-hmm. And Gabriel is a, a wonderful, world class cinematographer. He um, has done a lot of features. He he actually won the Golden Bear at Berlin All for wow. uh, for the film Caravaggio. Um, has been, uh, you know, worked with Guillermo del Toro and and David Mamet and all sorts of people. So wonderful, wonderful talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell of a CV. Yeah, and um, and we've we've got some talent uh, attached on the acting side. We've got um, we've got Ron Perlman attached as the lead in the for the American Businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that um, because it's important for. The uh, the conversation uh, later as we proceed, not to not to name drop, although maybe just a little bit of that, because it's awfully fun to say, yeah, we've got Ron Perlman attached. Mm. Uh, but it is important when you when you talk about taking a film or taking a project, especially that's in development, yeah. to a market like AFM. So. Uh, so I've got that, and that was the primary reason I was there. And then I've also um, starting in on the on the development phase for a very low budget horror, um, and so I was also testing the waters for that. That would probably be something that I would um, that I would be in a better position to take in next year. But kind of getting a getting a feel for what the market was looking like for low budget horror this year, because the market does fluctuate. So yeah, so you were basically sort of almost like research and fact finding yeah. as much as you were trying to. Get get the deals, as it were. Absolutely, absolutely. Does yep. does your Mexican the, the thriller have have a title? It does. It's called the Caddy. The Caddy. Okay. Now you said you said the director came to you with the project. In, in what, what what was it? A, a, a synopsis? Was it a, a rough draft? Was it was it just an idea that he'd had on, on a napkin? It was an idea. Um, so Gabriel is originally from Mexico City, and, okay. and um, although he's been working here in the states for thirty years or more, mm-hmm. um, and so um, the it, it, he and I have worked together on a couple of previous projects and have tried to put a couple of other um, features together and and have never quite come through. We've gotten really close a couple of times, and that's always um, mm. exciting and infuriating in equal measure. Of course. Uh, have literally had projects be two weeks from checks being written and fall apart, um, but probably a lot of our a lot of our brethren out there have had that experience, um, mm-hmm. and that's the nature of the business. So, yeah. So, so this was an idea that he brought to me and said, "Would you be interested in writing this and producing it for me?" Because he knew that I was producing, moving more into producing as well. Okay. And uh, and and the idea resonated with me. It was a lot of fun. He's brought me other ideas that you know. He said, "What about this one?" And it's like, "Yeah, oh, no." As a writer, it doesn't click with me or whatever. But this one really clicked, and uh, especially in in the current climate, because it deals a lot with um, with class. 
with uh, you know social class, economic class, um, culture, and culture clashes between, uh, for in this example, between America and Mexico, and and uh, so it feels especially relevant, and it and it definitely clicked with me, and uh, so I he he literally came to me with just a with just a pitch with a, about a three minute pitch, and and I fleshed it out from there and wrote the script. And um, um, it's it's an area of your uh, the, that 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 culture clash between. Mexico and America, right on that that kind of border area of it, is, yeah. is is one that even though I live over in the UK, one that fascinates me. I'm a I'm a big fan of um, of the novelist. Uh, I don't know if you know Sam Hawking at all. I know the name. I've never read anything. Yeah, he's he's sort of. I've had there's like a trilogy of his that are all set around America border towns and then going into uh-huh. Tijuana and stuff. Really, sort of like kidnap stories and then people going missing stories and all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's uh, yeah, no, it's. Uh, it's inter- it's an interesting part, and, and more recently in cinema with uh, Sicario, the uh, yes. the Villeneuve yeah. movie with uh, Taylor Sheridan on the on the script for yeah. that one. Was, yeah, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful film. So, uh, if you were taking a three minute pitch idea and making it making it into a script, now when I'm talking, often what I do on the script on the on the podcast is talk about the writing process, and as obviously you're a writer, what would you, what do you remember being the sort of at the current draft you're at now where you're developing it, what for you have been the sort of biggest storytelling challenges for you? Um, on the kind of kind of process side, it, yeah. it, a lot of it is, quite frankly, knowing that we need to produce this and produce it as a low budget mm-hmm. is is keeping the page count down. Absolutely okay. critical um, because budget is directly related to page count um, and keeping the structure such that it's it's contained or, or at least semi-contained um, so that it is filmable on a low budget and on a relatively abbreviated shooting schedule, but also not so contained that it's, um, you know, kind of ship in a bottle kind of story because that's yeah, not yeah. the kind of story it is. Um, and so sort of striking that balance and knowing, okay, you, you know, I can't have I, I can't have a fleet of army helicopters come flying over the horizon because that's our whole budget right there. So <laughs> um, so how do I you know, how do I structure the story in such a way that that with my producer head on at the same time, knowing kind of how much it's going to cost and how much is going to be feasible. Um, and then there was just, you know, kind of some practical logistics of, um, making sure as, you know, as, as the director is giving me his feedback and saying, I need you to be sure to hit these, these plot points, or I need you to be sure to hit these emotional beats. Hmm. Um, because as a writer, you know, I, I, I start from my own stuff more often than not. And, and so this was an instance where, you know, I had to be sure even in, in the early drafting and development stages here that I'm, I'm incorporating the things that the director knows or, or feels are important. So that was occasionally challenging because and, and it's, the, it's the collaborative nature of filmmaking, especially between the, the writer and the director um, at the stage anyway, in that. You know, it's not it's not just me writing a script and putting it out there. It's it's the you know, this is an instance where the director came to me with an idea. So I have to be very cognizant of that Mm. Um, where the where I'm writing something, knowing that, you know, that the director is 
it needs to, um, you know, wants to film this and needs to film this. And so he's going to have feedback. And that kind of ignores the fact that even as we get further down the line and move toward production, that, you know, that, that actors and others are going to have feedback as well, including, including the money people. The money people have uh, feedback and, and when they're writing the checks, you got to listen to it. That's, that's, uh, or at least you got to decide what you're going to listen to. And that's part of the, uh, kind of part of the, the, deal with the devil that you make when when you're going out to find money is is um you know they have a they're the ones that are risking the risking their investment they have a right to a certain say in terms of what they think is going to be successful or not so definitely those elements and then just the usual storytelling challenges you know okay how do i get from point a to point b in a in a way that feels organic and that feels um uh you know like it's like it's true to the characters and and these were some fairly complex characters in in many ways the two main characters especially the mexican uh, diplomat and the american businessman yeah um and and a lot of their dialogue is almost a you know kind of a um or or the the subtext i should say of their dialogue um when they're they're kind of trapped in a warehouse together for an extended period of time is um, you know it's a conversation if you boil it right down to it it's a conversation about social class and economics and uh, and okay that's you know that's that's the whole kind of theme of the script but theme always has to be submerged and so it can't be a couple of guys sitting around talking about economics um, and so how do you know how do you how do you make that exciting and how do you make that again kind of organic and a part of the character in this conversation and argument that evolves? How do you make that um, you know something that's uh, that's realistic and, and engaging um, and at the same time is you know subtext subtextually saying the things you want it to say? How, how do you, I mean when it's a collaboration like that? How, how do you um, how do you balance the <laughs> the, the, the the lack of clarity with mind reading and what you think is right for the screenplay. <laughs> it's it is a challenge. There's no question about it, um, and it may explain why I'm starting to move into directing myself a little bit too. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. reach a point where it's like, gosh, it would just be easier if I could just do this on my own. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of it is building the relationship with with your collaborator. In this case, with the director. Um, he and I have known each other for a long time. We have a good feel for each other, I think, and a good feel for how the other person thinks and what they, you know, for example, what Gabrielle brings to the table as a yeah. visual artist. I've got a, I think I've got a good feel for that. Um, and, and he, he knows what I bring to the table as a writer and, and I'm, I'm guess I'm making a huge assumption there, but seems to, seems to appreciate that because he keeps coming back to me with projects. Of course, um, yeah. So, uh, so, but kind of, yeah, you, you, you just kind of, and a lot of it is draft after draft after draft, you know, there is that you have a conversation, you hope you understood what the other person was talking about. You create a new draft, you send it <laughs> off and they come back and they say, what the hell were you thinking? I, I was not a part of that conversation. Um, and you go back and you try again. And there's a, you know, there's just a, that's the nature of writing, of course, especially writing scripts is just lots and lots of drafting. Was she, but hopefully... You- yeah. No, go on. Go on. Finish what you're saying. Oh, I was sorry. just going to say, but hopefully in that first draft, you got the spine right. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah. You get the spine right. Everything else really amounts to details at that point. And we were very fortunate in that um, he, he 
felt like I got the spine right on the first draft. That was what he was looking for. The the characters were engaging. I invented a couple of new key characters because he, you know, he just gave me this very brief outline. Uh, he re- those characters really resonated with him. And uh, for example, there's a, a, a police detective in the um, federal police that that uh, gets assigned to this to this case and has to work with an American FBI liaison. And and that character ended up you know, really, really being fun to write. He's going to be fun to play and, and really resonated with Gabrielle. Um, so we, we got all the big pieces, right. And after that, it's, it's really, you know, Oh, can you, can you shade this, this patch of blue over here, you know, make it a little <laughs> bit more aquamarine kind of thing. And, uh, so that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of that is what's going on now. And then, like I said, the next wave will be when we get into production and, you know, uh, certainly someone of, of, say, Ron Ron Perlman's caliber. I somehow suspect he's going to have some notes on his on his scenes. So of course, yeah, already yeah. myself up for that. And, do you, and do, you, do you anticipate that's just about the words he speaks, or about what he's doing? Do you expect that to be both, or, or, or I more expect about... it to be both? Yeah, okay. yeah. Somebody. Um, Somebody you know of that level of experience and mm. expertise, and um, you know, I think he's and and Ron's got his own production company, and so he he also looks at it through a producer's lens. Um, I'm sure will be. I'm sure he does with his other projects. Um, you know, and that's and that's part of what somebody like him brings to the table, and why it's exciting to work with somebody like him because you you know that it's going to make the project better. Um, and, and that's a mantra that I always have to tell myself because as writers, you know, we're egocentric enough. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have some element of ego, um, mm. that says, you know, that, that what we've written is brilliant and golden and every word is perfect. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, you, you, you got to trust your collaborators and, 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 you know, really go in with the sense that, um, you know, that they're going to bring to the table, uh, ideas and perspectives that are are really valuable and um and that are going to make the script better and if you feel like it doesn't you also have to have a relationship where you can and and for example gabrielle and I, gabrielle and i do where you know each one of us has times has said no don't i don't like that i don't i don't think that i don't think that works um and here's why you know you got to be you got to be prepared to defend your position mm. uh, and then you got to be prepared also you know you, you got there's got to be give and take again film is a collaborative medium and i started out publishing writing short stories and publishing short stories started as a as a prose fiction writer and uh, you know there's there's certainly something um less stressful in that in that you write a short story and you send it out and somebody buys it or they don't but nobody gives you notes back um, <laughs> At least not in this day and age. Maybe, no, no, you know, no. in the golden age, uh, you know, where you'd get, you know, you'd send something out to one of the one of the big editors, uh, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Campbell or whoever, um, and, and they'd send you back a bunch of notes. And, and, you know, that was, I'm sure, great. These days it doesn't happen. These days you send out a story, it gets published or it doesn't. Nobody, nobody tells you anything. And there's something comforting in that because uh, you're not having to try to incorporate somebody else's ideas into your work. Uh, film is a collaborative medium by nature, and and you know the script is a blueprint for the director and for the actors, um, and you have to you have to one recognize that when you go into production, and two in in 
the development stage, you know, if you've got people um, like Gabrielle and like Ron and like, you know, some of the other actors that we're hoping to bring aboard, um, you, yeah, you've got to trust in them. There's, it's just got to be a relationship of trust across the board. And they well, hopefully trust in you as well. Yeah, of course. I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it works both ways. But from your, when, when you're looking, I guess when you're looking up and going, oh, great, they're in our project, then and part of it has to be, what am I going to learn from them? Not, not, yeah. not what am I going to tell them? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and you know that's to me that's that's very very exciting. I mean mm. that's that's thrilling. I've I've even um, you know some of the actors I've worked with at a at a, a smaller scale, but you know nonetheless extremely skilled, extremely talented actors. Mm. Uh, I I've seen people read scenes and you know and film scenes that were seventy five degrees off how I had written it. Or how certainly I had envisioned it in my head mm. when I wrote it, and just thought, "Holy crap!" They, you know, keep keep this a PG family-oriented uh, podcast. <laughs> Holy crap! That was that was uh, way better than the way I was envisioning it. Um, and you know, that's that's exciting, and that's the fun part of working with with really talented people is they're going to surprise you, and and um, you know, and that's fun. That's fun when they surprise you in good ways. Anyway, it's less fun when they surprise you in less in less good ways. But that happens too. Um, and again, you just kind of got to accept it. Now, one last question about about yourself before we move into the AFM part of it. Um, as as a writer, what's your what's your preferred process then when you when you start with that seed of an idea? Do you just dive into final draft and away you go? Are you caught board in it? Are you Brainstorming, mind mapping. Are you? How do, how do you am, sort of compile that skeleton that becomes the screenplay? Yeah, I have become an inveterate outliner. Um, I didn't used to work that way. I still okay. don't when I'm writing prose. Yeah. Uh, but in screenplays, screenplays are structure, 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 structure. Yeah. And um, and so I've really come to believe in all of the preparatory work. I, I did a, another script, actually it was another script with Gabrielle, mm-hmm. um, and, and I did not outline well enough, and it was a very, very complicated story, and I found myself lost in the box canyons, and, um, and it was uh, very, very frustrating. Um, I had to basically throw away an entire three-quarters of a draft because I realized I, I was... I was just all over the place and I had to go back and kind of start over again. And so I have become an inveterate outliner. I, I usually go through a process where I just start writing down ideas because I, I want, you know, you kind of want that first wave of stuff when you connect with the material. You just want to get it. You want to get those ideas out there and you don't want to uh, hinder those ideas forming because you're trying to stick them into some sort of formal format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so just kind of, I, you know, I just I have pieces of notepaper, I have my computer open, I just jot down things, whether it's pieces of dialogue or character notes or, or uh, plot points or whatever the case may be. And then I go through and I start outlining. And I have a, I have kind of a melange of, of techniques that I've, I've um, absorbed and, and made into one. So I, I end up with a, kind of a beat sheet that's usually 45 to 50 beats long and, and broken down into you know, the major plot points and then the, the pieces between them. 
um, the the plot points between them, and and so that usually gives me you know about about ninety percent of my structure right there, mm. uh, and that usually takes uh, depending on how fast I'm working, you know that that as often as not can take almost as long as actually writing the script, depending on the on the particular script. Um, and then sometimes, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't actually go through and write a, a multi-page synopsis uh, or, you know, kind of narrative outline, um, depending on, you know, how good I feel about how much I, uh, handle I have on the characters and things like that. I have, oh, yeah. okay. I have, I have one right now, yeah, that I'm, I'm actually going through and doing that because I feel like I've got all the plot points, but I'm not sure I feel like I have a handle on a couple of the characters. So writing it out as a narrative kind of forces you to fill in some of those gaps um, that that maybe once you get into the script, you're going to go, oh, I'm gosh, I'm not sure. Is that character, you know, is, is he really on this person's side? Is he not on their side? I know what he's doing. I know, you know. I, I know what he's doing in terms of driving the plot forward, but I'm not sure what he's doing in terms of his interaction and his relationship with the other characters. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I tend to outline very, very heavily, and then, and then usually, uh, if that's the case, then the, the actual writing and final draft goes very quickly. And that's hopefully how it should go, shouldn't it? Really, the, I mean, it's never easy, easy, but it should, yeah, exactly. it should flow once you're in, once you get to final, once you sit down to final draft. It should be flowing somewhere, even if it, even if sometimes it feels like you're going over bumpy roads. It's still yeah, exactly. I I have, and it, this is this phrase is not mine, but I I use it because I think it's absolutely perfect. I have tried because I used to edit as I go and you know kind of self-edit as I'm writing, and and again I've kind of changed the the further along in my career that I've gotten. I try to make the first draft what somebody else once called the vomit draft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. just get it out there, and I don't self-edit, and I don't stop and correct, and I don't go back and change things, um, and I just I just drive off of my outline and and get to the last page, and mm. then I go back and kind of go, okay, here's all the spots I got to clean stuff up, <laughs> and, and and there's usually a lot of them, but at the same time, what usually happens when I do that, I find is if if I'm kind of in the zone and and it's progressing the way that it should subconsciously I I I everything kind of pulls together um and so I'll I'll have callbacks to something that I wrote you know 3 weeks ago in act 1 when I'm here at the you know at the um uh, at the end of act 2 and I, you know and I'm and I'm kind of doing the big turn here and it's like just my brain just cycles right back down. It's still fresh, and mm. I haven't overthought it. Um, and then there's just a lot of you know a lot of cleanup in the in the subsequent drafts. I've had drafts that went like that. The the, the horror script that I'm I'm looking at producing next, um, and that just won a couple of awards. So that's lovely. That's that, how that, that, that What's the title of that one, by the way? That one was Unquiet. Okay. Oh, nice nice title. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, an old, uh, an old, actually English folk ballad, "The Unquiet Grave." Oh, really? Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And so it sort of drives off of the the themes in that ancient ballad. I mean, one of the things there, going off into a tangent very briefly, there is one of the things I love is the fact, and and one of the characters in the in the script says this: ghosts are not, uh, you know, a modern invention. Um, in terms of uh, you know people people have believed in in spirits in the spirit world and 
and in and obviously have had to deal with death and grief and that's where spirits in the spirit world come from since time immemorial so uh it's interesting to go back and look at some of those things and go yeah there's there's nothing new under the sun um people were dealing with these themes hundreds of years ago um so so yeah that one went very very quickly and i think uh, after all the outlining i think it was only about two or three weeks of of writing the script um Whereas, whereas some of them are still, even with all of that, they're still a slog. It's still six, eight weeks um, mm. and it's because they're more complicated. And Caddy, Caddy went relatively quickly as well, but we've gone through a lot of drafts on that now. So the first draft went very quickly, but we've actually been continuing to draft for, for some time now. I think, I think the other thing is, though, is um, I think a script is hard to read. I know that sounds like a daft thing to say between screenwriters, but... I think even even reading each other's work when you review it or when it goes off readers, they're still having a unique experience when they read it. That much like you know those moments you have where an actor will read a scene and you go, oh wow, what have you what have you done there? That's amazing. But if someone reads a whole entire script that way, then their feedback could end up being of no use whatsoever. And equal and equally, you know, you could end up mm-hmm. with, a, with a whole host of new ideas that you think, well, did. Did you did you read the same script that I was writing? Or... Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, no, you're, I, don't, you're... I don't think a novel you'd ever get that level of deviation away from the central plot or theme, would you? And you know, I think it goes. You're exactly right. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that the script is ultimately a blueprint. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it and it's by definition or by design, it has all of this space in there for interpretation. Mm. Um. And and so, whereas as you say, as a, as a novel, there, I mean, there's still obviously lots of room for interpretation there, but but it fills in all of that space, mm. uh, and it sort of has to because that's it's it's a you know it's intended to be a coherent experience in and of itself, whereas a, a screenplay is really something that you're handing off to a bunch of other people, the director and the production designer and the art director and the you know the this and the that that then they are bringing in their interpretation of what you've written. Um, and as a reader, then you kind of fill all those roles in your head. Mm. Um, and, and you, you know, you bring in, you know, hopefully you're, you know, you're in, when you're writing your script, you're not writing in camera angles and things like that. So as you're reading the script, you're visualizing it. Um, and you're, you're visualizing, you know, the kind of little brain camera angles and things like that. And you're visualizing what the set looks like. And, you know, probably in the script, it's just a fairly, um, you know, fairly uh, high level description of what is, what the setting looks like. And, um, and so sometimes, yeah, I mean, I've certainly had that experience where it's like, what the hell script were you reading? Cause that's not the one I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, that, that gives us a nice opportunity to shift into the American film market then. Um, so that's where that's just why why I got in touch with you in the first place to come on the British podcast because I think from a British point of view this is this is something that you know obviously people who are much further down the line with their with their projects and or arguably British sales agents probably have the most exp- would have the most year to year experience with something like AFM I guess and distributors for obvious reasons and mm-hmm. like you said I mean and kindly in the uh, in the genre uh, forum that we all we're, we're all party to um in in facebook you mentioned that afm is seen largely as a genre market uh, which i guess i guess differentiates it from can film festival which is what the marketplace yeah. I'm, I'm more used to although if you want on the marketplace itself it is it is a lot of genre there. oh sure yeah yeah 
Uh, you, I mean, just set the scene. I mean, it, 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 what's the venue where AFM is, and, and, yeah. and so what scale are we talking? Yeah, it's a it, it's very it's very LA. So it is uh, held. At least it's been held all the all the times that I've been going to it. Um, at uh, right down in Santa Monica, right on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, the the primary main location is a place called the Lowe's Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's right on the beach. It's very Hollywood, uh, even if it's Santa Monica. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the literally you, you, if you're sitting out on the, out on the, the pool deck, there's the beach and the ocean behind you and palm trees and sunshine. And it's, it's, uh, it's the kind of quintessential Hollywood experience. There are then actually a number of other, uh, venues right there that also participate because it's very, very large. I, I I don't know the numbers, but I know it's you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Mm. Um, my guess would be potentially in the tens of thousands um, for the entire festival. There's there's actually kind of a couple of different elements to it. There's the uh, it's not a film festival. I mean, for starters, and I mm-hmm. think probably most people are aware of that. But it's not a film festival. Uh, there are films that are shown, but they are shown in the context of selling and buying. So sales um, screenings. Sales screenings, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, uh, but there are there is also what's called the the conference proper, and that's uh, a series. I think there's five or six of them now that are sort of half day long um, seminar presentations. So, for example, there's a there's a conference on um, on film financing, and they'll have uh, 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 an, a facilitator. Um, and then four or five or six um, uh, producers and film financiers up on stage, and and these are all you have to you have to purchase these separately from your pass to the to the market itself. Um, and there's there's one on pitching. There's a, a wonderful one on pitching that's hosted every year by Stephanie Palmer, who is uh, absolutely brilliant. If if your folks have not. Um, seen her work and seen gone out to her website and things like that. Uh, it's mm. called Good Good in a Room. Uh, she is uh, the uh, former MGM exec who now specializes in teaching people how to pitch. Okay. Uh, and she's wonderful. And I've I've taken some classes through her and and have bought some of her materials just because it's it's she she presents everything really really well. And I always remind myself I go back and review her materials every time I'm I'm preparing a new pitch. Um, so, so there's these these conferences, and you learn a lot. Um, I've been to them before, and they tend to be a little bit repetitive. So, if you've been once, you really probably don't need to go again. Um, it tends to be the same information and the same people, but it's it's extremely valuable information. And then there's the um, then there's the market itself, and really think about a, a big hotel, which mm-hmm. is what the Lowe's is, a big hotel where instead of all of the rooms being normal hotel rooms, they have emptied them all out and they are now sales booths. Um, and that's what they are. It's, and there's hundreds of these companies, uh, there are distribution companies, they're sales agents, uh, marketing companies. And, uh, and so each of these companies has taken over a, a room or a suite or, and you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of always interesting to see the companies that have 
a little, you know, kind of a little broom closet and the companies that have, you know, <laughs> half, half of a floor, uh, you know, because Lionsgate is there and things yeah. like that. And yeah, yeah. So, so some of the big, um, you know, mini majors are there. The big studios aren't there because it is an independent film festival uh, or film market, I should say. Okay. It is an independent film market that's geared toward buying and selling movies. So, um, so you've got um, everything from filmmakers there trying to sell their movie to, uh, whether to a distributor or to a sales agent, um, you've got sales agents trying to sell their films that they have already accepted to these distributors. So there's a lot of that that's going on. Um, and in fact, for, for the first several days, that's really the focus is, is the, the kind of the, uh, the companies doing business between themselves. So, is, given it's called American film market, is it about the American audiences, or is it a world film? Are, are you selling film? If people are selling movies, are they, are they selling worldwide as well as in America when they come to America? Great question. Market? No, it's absolutely a worldwide market. Mm. Um, in fact, it's it's um, become very very important um, for the uh, the market in Asia. Uh, okay. Huge presence by um, Hong Kong, China, um, to a lesser extent Japan, um, but yeah, very much worldwide, and of course, and very, very much a European presence as well. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly lots of you know it, it is focused on on worldwide sales rights, um, but of course, there's also the the European film market associated with Berlin All, and so that that also you know that tends to be. Kind of like Cannes, it's it's a it's a different market than AFM, um, but it is also you know that's where then you'll get a lot of the European uh, distributors and sales agents there. So you get a lot of the American companies, but they are interested in buying and selling worldwide rights, and you get distributors that do distribute worldwide as well. Mm. So you so you say you were there for trying to look at raising finance for your film you're doing with Gabrielle. Yes. And you were looking to see what the world looked like in terms of the horror idea you were developing. Yep. Yep. So, exactly. so in that sense, what what was are you do you go with is everything you do on spec, do you arrive and look and see, or is there prep work before you go to AFM and you're booking in your meetings before you even arrive? Is that or is it a combination the of the two? Combination of the two, absolutely. So the the secret to success, um, or at least not being completely frustrated by AFM is preparation. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of resources that will help you prepare. Um, but you absolutely want to go through and try to set up as many in as many pre-scheduled meetings as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because, you know, one kind of almost by definition, you have, you have filtered down to people that have at least some degree of interest in talking to you. Um, so you know that, you know, you know that they're not just going to shoo you out the door okay. uh, because they've arranged to talk with you. And, and in doing so, you know, you, you um, to set up those meetings, you will go through, for example, well, in this case, I have a, a lower budget uh, thriller. Most, mm -hmm. most, well, I'll, I'll come back to this. Most of the stuff at AFM is in the budget range, or a lot of it is in the budget range that the caddy is in. Okay. Um, although there's some interesting changes going on there, and, and, and I'll try to remember to come back to that. Okay. Um, but um, 
so you go through and use various resources, whether it's IMDb Pro. Um, uh, there's a, a, a site called Sinando, C-I-N-A-N-D-O. Yeah, 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 yeah. they're big promoting yeah. themselves at Cannes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're, and what they do is, yeah, they work all of these markets. And they, you know, they uh, um, kind of provide a, a, a resource, a research resource for being able to go in and see, you know, what sorts of films are they doing, um, who is going to be there and, you know, which of their staff. Um, and, um, and so you go through and you kind of figure – so I started, for example, I started with a list of 50, I think, which is – I started with a list of 50 that I whittled it down from even more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually whittled that down to about 20, 25, I think it was, uh, companies. Uh, and I was looking particularly at sales agents um, because of where the, the project is, um, still in development, to about 25 companies that – seemed to, to the best of my ability to discern, um, operate budget-wise and genre-wise where the caddy is. So, um, so lower budget, um, thriller, um, dramatic thriller um, kind, of, kind of companies. And then I went through using, again, using those resources, um, Sinando, et cetera, went through and figured out you know, okay, who's going to be the right person to send an email to? Um, and, and you kind of pitch. You know, you have a very, very brief written pitch in, in, in email form in this case. It's, it's, email is almost always better than a call at this stage. They're just not going to probably take your call. Um, and, you know, and just sent, a, sent an email that said, uh, hey, I've got this project. I'm going to be – and here's what it is, and I'm going to be at AFM and would love to find time to sit down with you. Mm. And – you know, and and you'll get some people that write back and say, "Sure, sounds interesting. Let's set up a time." And you'll get some people that say, uh, "And I actually personally really appreciate this." They'll say, "Nope, really not in our wheelhouse, but thanks for thanks for thinking about us." Um, you know, I had I corresponded back and forth with one gentleman that basically, you know, said, "You know, sounds like a great project. It's it's. I don't want to waste your time. You know, I'd be glad to sit down with you, but I don't want to waste your time. I'm, it's not something we're going to buy." And, and I was like, okay, great. You know, that's I, that's perfectly fine. And then the vast majority of people you simply won't hear back from. Um, and and you got to be a little persistent. Send two or three times. And so, for example, this year it was the third reach out I think to a company that I got a response on, um, and and that proved to be a very fruitful conversation. So you do have to be a little bit of a nudge. And kind of get in there and be a pain, and and then and then kind of know when to stop. It's like okay, if after three times they're not responding, they're probably not gonna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you yeah, so you've got kind of that phase, and and I think I went in to AFM this year with about eight scheduled conversations, something okay. like that, six or eight, um, and then um, and then of the people that were on my list but hadn't responded, um, I just did walk-ins, um, which is exactly that. You you kind of hover around outside the door, wait till they have a free minute, and uh, and you poke your head in and you say, hey, I don't have an appointment, but I've got this project and I'd, I'd love to sit down and talk with somebody about it. And probably 70% of the time, people are going to go, here's the card of our development director. Call them at some point. Um and at some, some of them, I literally had some people say, no, bye. 
um, but just about that abrupt. Um, I've had that account. It's uh, yeah, it's yeah, not, exactly. It's not a nice it's feeling, but you got we no, got to go with it. You got to go with it. Uh, where, where it's like, no, we're not interested. You may leave the room now. Um, and it, it's a little discouraging, um, but but you just gotta you just gotta recognize that. You know, one, if you're feeling feeling beneficent, um, recognize that these are enormously busy people and this is their, you know, this is what they're doing. They're just seeing people one after another for like seven days. And um, and so they don't have time to waste. You know, this is this is business. And for a lot of these companies, you know, this is this is like the the Christmas shopping for the retail world. This mm. this is a big chunk of their business right here. And, and so they're not going to waste time on you. And, and hopefully they're not overtly rude. I had a couple of those. But, uh, you know, you, you just you go down to the bar and you have a drink and you pick yourself up and you go on to the next one. Um, and, and then, yeah, and then you get, the, you get the, you know, kind of everything in between people who and, – and I had a few of these where people said, yeah, sure, come on in. And, and a lot of that is timing. Um, and, and I'm getting better at working the market there, too, in terms of timing those things. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, a lot of it, is, you know, kind of recognizing what you're likely to get out of a conversation is, is critical. And talking to the – targeting talking to the right people is critical, catching them at the right time. So it's a bit of a complex equation to, to kind of hopefully get everything aligned and – So, yeah, so let, let me just recap then. So the, the complicated equation of variables is persistence in the prep and then opportunism while you're there and then a little bit of good luck is kind Absolutely. of – it's kind of, and obviously professionalism is it runs through all three of those aspects yes. of it, and yes. then and people that want to see you will see you, and people that can't or won't see you won't, and that's and that's the rub of the green, and that's sort of it, really, isn't it? So into yeah. that, and I don't mean that to sound trite at all, <laughs> but but it is, but I mean, and it's and it's really important. You're exactly right. That's that's it right there in a nutshell, and and it's that's the nature of the business. And one of the things I want to stress, because unfortunately I have seen this. Um, uh, I've I've never done it, but I've seen it certainly. No matter how abruptly, or or if you may feel rudely, or whatever the case may be, somebody uh, treats you, you have got to be professional and positive, and say thank you very much and leave the room. And then if you need to go, you know, scream in a pillow, do that. But I have seen people get into fights and arguments. Um, with with these sales agents and distributors in the room, um, because they feel like they're being disrespected, or because somebody has said nope, not interested, and the person doesn't want to stop, and the and the sales agent has to say, I said I was not interested. You know, I know it sucks. We all have been there as as filmmakers, um, but you never know who's going to come back around and who's going to be. Uh, you know, somebody that you that you're going to talk to next year. Uh, that happened to me. I, I was I, I ended up talking to someone this year um, that I had talked to four years ago, and um, you know, and we and, and it had it had been a um, you know one of those conversations where they were they were pleasant and they were, it wasn't really quite right for them. But he, we remembered each other, and I reached out to him this time. And and again, unfortunately, it was kind of like, oh, in the in the meantime, in the last four years, their market has changed. And he literally said, if you had brought me this three years ago, I would have bought it. Um, but but that's not where my buyers are right now. 
Yeah, I was, was going to say, I was thinking, reading the lines of what you were saying, it's sort of like some relationships might not be today, but they can be tomorrow. So why would you want to burn a bridge just because someone was a bit abrupt with you? Yeah. It, I, it, it seems nonsensical. And given film relationships, even even for the most successful projects, are long relationships, you know. Yeah. When, when you're not digging up, you know, you're not digging in for digging and digging to get your film made. Even Even those films that just glide through development and finance still involve relationships that last years, don't they? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and again, you never, you never know when you're going to come back to somebody. You never, people, it's a small business. People move mm. around and, and maybe you're a jerk to this person when they're over at this sales agent and lo and behold, you know, two years down the road, you come over to this other sales agent and there they are. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you, you've got to be, you've got to keep it professional because that's really what it comes down to. I mean, this is, this is filmmaking. AFM is, is the, the absolute epitome, just like in many ways can and, and EFM as well. AFM is filmmaking as a business. Mm. This is not filmmaking as an art or a creative endeavor. This is filmmaking as a business. And that's what it's, that's what it does. That's what it's there for. And, and if you can't go in with that mindset, maybe you're not the person to be in there trying to sell your project and that's okay. I've, I've seen other people do that where essentially they kind of, you know, it's a, they're a director, but they're really not good on the business side of things. That's what you get a producer for. Mm. And, and then the producer goes in and they're the, you know, they've got to be the person who, who knows how to not just not just kind of pitch the project from a creative standpoint, but how to deal with the the business side of things. Now, from from a, from a layperson's point of view, you, you, I just want to go back on something you said right at the start of this that you your main objective was to get to meet sales agents because of where the caddy was in its development process. So, what what's what's the logic there in terms of developing a film that that sales agents becomes important to you now? Yeah, uh, sure. Good question. Two two important things there. One is the the idea that is less prevalent these days, but still can happen, mm-hmm. and that is the possibility of pre-sales. Okay. So um, so the idea of going in now here in this case, I've got a project that has a couple of talent attachments to it mm-hmm. that are that have market value. Um, and, uh, you know, and hate to talk about it that way, but that's, again, this is, this is with the business hat on. So I've got, I've got, you know, a, a known talented director. Um, I've got a known actor Mm. and, um, and so there is, there is the possibility of going in and having somebody say, yeah, I think we might be able to pre-sell this to the following markets and be able to kind of raise the following amount of money in those pre-sales. And, and I have some ongoing conversations with some of the companies I spoke with along exactly those lines, which frankly is way better than I had any business even hoping for. Because wow. um, the reality is, is that pre-sales are very difficult to do these days. Um, for those in your audience who, who aren't aware of what a pre-sale is, um, mar- movies are sold by markets, um, and, and that's kind of by region or by country, depending on exactly where you're selling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and a pre-sale basically means 
a sales agent, there's a lot of middle. This is why this is why it's really hard to track finances in the film industry, and why you hear all the horror <laughs> stories. There's not just one middleman. There's a, there's a bunch of middle people in the process of selling films, and so a sales agent may sell to a um, to a distributor in a particular market. So let's say Germany. Yeah. Uh, so I may I may sell my movie to a sales agent who then sells it to a bunch of markets. A pre-sale is that sales agent being able to go to Germany, to the to their distributor in Germany that they have a relationship with, and saying, I've got this film, it's in development right now, but it's got the following, you know, here, here's a description of it, and it's got the following talent attachments, and it really all comes down to the talent attachments because that's what drives money, mm. um, with, the, with the exception of horror, and we can come back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, so how much do you think you could how much do you think you could make in Germany mm. with this package? And and give me the money up front. And anything that you make past that is is yours. And that's that's an oversimplification, but that's kind of what a pre-sales is. So, Germany may say, "I'll give you $250,000." And we all fist pump we all fist pump and we hoot and holler and jump up and down. And, and that's $250,000 now that the movie has already made, even though it's not even made yet. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and you take those pre-sales and, and you offset those um, then with financiers because you're, then you're able to go to a financier and say, hey, I've already, I've already pre-sold into the following territories for $1.2 million. And they'll go, that's great. Here's $1.2 million. Um, so, so pre-sales uh, used to be really, really important and a really important way of getting independent films made um, because it was a way to get at money bef- to, to actually make the product. And, of course, that's the catch-22. How, how do you make a movie without any money? Um, yeah, because the, pre, the pre-sales are essentially saying this is the value of your product, isn't it? As opposed exactly. to, whereas you're going, I need this much to make the movie, and then a right. combination of markets go, and, well, we already value it at this, so therefore... Right, that's and that's the, that's the second reason I was there, because realistically, I wasn't expecting to do any pre-sales. Like I said, we actually have some, some very positive things happening there, and that's exciting, mm. um, but the, the real reason I was there was to, to start to build relationships with these sales agents and to present the project to them and say... Based on these elements, what do you think we're going to do in the following markets? And uh, what okay. other elements could I get in there that are going to boost that and, and, and increase our chances of success and increase our – so you know, right now we've got one of the leads cast, but we have a couple of the other leads that aren't cast yet. And so a couple of the conversations I had with folks were along the lines of, well – you know, here's some people that do, you know, that, that, you know, kind of based on your story and everything, have you considered the following actors? Um, and some of them were people, you know, that I said, well, what about this person? What about that person? And, and, um, you know, and they'd say, oh, that person, you know, really good actor, but there's no, there's no market attack, no market value to them. Um, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna raise money for you in, in any of these pre-sales situations. Um, and others, you know, they and then we had people throwing ideas out at out at me, saying, "Well, have you thought about this person? Have you thought about this person?" And in a couple of cases, um, had people say, "Well, I've got a relationship with this person. I'd be glad to introduce them to you um, if you think they're, 
you know, they'd be right for the role. And I think, you know, that they'd be good for the role and they might bring some money in as well. So a lot of it is when you're in a development stage like like the caddy is, a lot of it is about kind of laying the groundwork and building those relationships. And so now I've got all this follow-up to do and, and have been doing in, in the interim, mm. talking to some of these companies and saying, okay, you know, I want to talk further about this. And you said, you know, you said you'd introduce me to this person. And, um, and so there's, uh, you know, a lot of that going on, whether or not it leads to any pre-sales. We, at the very least, for example, have a couple of instances where, where when we are ready to go to, to the financiers, we're able to say, we've got these companies interested. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I have a, a handful of companies that have said, yeah, we're not doing pre-sales um, anymore. And the, the, basically the pre-sales market has kind of collapsed because it, a lot of people got burned. Um, they'd pay out money for a product that then – turned out not to be good, didn't make their money back. Those distributors, they're out that money. It's not like, it's not like you repay them. Um, and so the pre-sales market has collapsed a little bit. But, but what we've got now is, is you know, kind of this ability to go to financiers and say, listen, I've got so-and-so over at XYZ sales agency, and, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're waiting for a finished product. They definitely want to see what it looks like, and they're interested, and they want to work with us. And all of those things kind of help go into that big that big melting do, pot. Do, do, you, do, you, do you think the marketplace has has begun to settle now in terms of the various disruptions we've had from, I guess, the growth of broadband internet? Because I was interested by a comment you left at Shadowland, which was this idea of obviously the pre-sales bit being non-existent and competition being fierce. But obviously they're now being so many more channels for us to get things that, whereas it used to be physical products or cinema, now right. there are various avenues, you know, around the world, specifically to one country for all country. You know, the one you've got Netflix, I suppose, is a global yeah. brand that everyone recognises. You've got um, in, in, um, you've got Shudder, which is a specialist horror streaming exactly option. And so, is are these other sales agents you're talking to? Are they talk, are they valuing products in terms of how that the marketplace works? Because obviously, then we're not talking about the cinema, are we not? Before the idea of straight to DVD is obviously a redundant uh, business process now. But it, but the notion's still the same, isn't it? Just that the equivalence is straight yeah. to Shudder or straight to Netflix or whatever. I guess is that is that something that's settling down as a notion, or is it still not completely understood? Oh. I think it's very much settling down as a notion, and I think that's a lot of what I saw was that, um, you know, as you said, that the reality is is that the you know thinking that your film's going to to sell and play big in cinemas is is fairly unrealistic if you're not coming from a studio perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's it's not unheard of, but it's really, really hard. And and when you sit down and do all of the research, the reality is that the vast majority of independent films, even good ones, open on a very limited number of screens, um, you know, usually a very limited rollout. So, you know, maybe like four screens nationwide. Uh, I'm, I'm talking here in the U.S., but but I think the pattern holds true worldwide. If it If it does well, It'll expand and maybe it'd be very rarely see an independent film expand more than to about 600 screens in the U.S. And there are something along the lines of, um, I don't know what it is, 4,200 screens or something, maybe more than that now, 5,500 screens in the U.S. So 
um, you know, really big, successful independent movie may get out to to 600 screens. You get the you get the odd one, obviously, that explodes, and that's uh, you know that's like winning the lotto. But um, but the the reality is there is now a huge and growing market for content in all of these other distribution mechanisms. As you said, DVDs are dead, of course. You, mm. you, you, you as a as a as a uh, distribution mechanism, it's it, that model has more or less collapsed, um, and, and I think we're we're only going to see it continue to do so over the next two, three, four years. But as you said, there's 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 Netflix. You know, you get these kind of studio equivalent uh, distribution mechanisms like Netflix and Amazon Prime and things like that. Mm. And then and then what you just have is this huge proliferation of um, of other distribution channels, um, various cable television channels and things like that. And now more and more you're getting various online, you know, not, not necessarily streaming per se like, like Netflix, but online channels. And you're seeing a, an increasing number of, of uh, younger audiences that that is a viable, um, uh, what do I want to say, a viable uh, viewing format for them. Uh, I, I've got a 12-year-old son, and he'll sit down and, and you know watch extensive stuff on his computer. Um, you know, he'll sit there for for two, three, four. Hours. Well, he'd sit there for eight hours if I, I was let him. Sit there for three days, wouldn't he, if you let Yeah, him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, whereas you know my generation, that that's still fairly unusual. I, I even I watch more and more movies on my on my laptop, for example, uh, especially when I'm traveling. But um, but you know, for them, that's that's almost more normal than going to the cinema. And and so there's a huge opportunity there now, on the uh, that's balanced by the fact that those distribution vectors are a lot less monetized than what we would consider to be the more traditional, you know, the the DVDs, uh, certainly less than the cinema, um, and so on the one hand there's there's a lot of opportunity, on the other hand there's not as much opportunity to make good money, as it were. And so I think people, you know, kind of need to be realistic in their expectations of what these distribution channels pay. Um, I think that will continue to change. Um, but, I mean, the, the, it's an interesting – we're in a very, very interesting period right now because we do have these new distribution channels. We have new – um, kind of financial models that are forming out of that and that are in turn kind of informing um, those distribution channels. We have just at a technical level such an increased ability to create, you know, what would be considered professional level um, material, uh, you know, the, the availability of, of high quality cheap DSLRs, um, for example. Here and, and and everything being digital, you know, I the first the first feature film that I had produced as a writer um, was shot on film, and that was probably the film itself was probably because it was it was low budget independent. It was the the film itself was probably two thirds of the budget, oh, okay. and you know because because film was expensive, film was, was really indeed. expensive, and uh, you know and so that you know you're getting actors for cheap and we're getting sets for cheap, you know and and beg borrowing and stealing, but 
you can only get so far beg borrowing and stealing on the film side. And so there's this ability to actually produce really high quality material. Um, and, and so there's a, so there's more competition than because of that mm. in a way on the creative side, there's more opportunity on the distribution side for a lot of, um, for a lot of, um, uh, genres, um, but there's also the, the the financial elements have not quite gelled there yet. So you can make money, but it, it really goes to show you really need to you you need to be very very aggressive about keeping costs down. Ah, uh, you you know when you're talking to sales agents now, are they able to draw draw up like proper metrics now? Because obviously yes. for for a long while. Netflix weren't exactly transparent, were they, about whatever their metrics were. So, therefore, how can you judge value of something you don't know what is actually happening? Yeah. Whereas, I guess, I guess if you do well on iTunes, it's a bit like doing well on DVDs, isn't it? Because if people either rent or buy it, then there's, there's right. a, it, it's every single one is one more, isn't it? Whereas, if I, if I, get, if I sell a film to Netflix and we don't know how well it's done, how do we judge right. whether the next film's worth paying more for or worth selling more for? Is, is it's, those... You know, that's a really, really excellent question, and I would actually consider it to be probably one of the preeminent questions that's out there right now. Because And, and, and it's all about Netflix. It's because of Netflix's dominance yeah. uh, as a brand and certainly dominance. Um, certainly the last a... three years at Cam, that question has been like a recurring yeah. nightmare, I think, in, in yeah. all the seminars yeah. I've attended. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and they and they continue to be very opaque about okay. any of their numbers. Um, I think if anything that's coming out of it is there's at least a sense of whether or not we on the on the on the creative end, whether or not on the sales agents, and they ultimately know quote unquote how well it did on Netflix. Yeah. I think there's enough of a pattern there that they know I I can sell this movie for this much money to Netflix based on I sold a similar movie like this for this much money to Netflix. Right. And, and more accurately, probably I've sold seven movies like this that were at this budget range and in this type of movie to Netflix. So I know kind of how much they're going to pay for it or how much they're willing to pay for it. Now, the big question is, is you know how much is Netflix then benefiting from that? Are they uh, you know are they kind of underpaying the market? Are they overpaying the market? Uh, and that's where their numbers are completely opaque, or at least I, I think to to most of us. Uh, I'm starting no. to hear there's some transparency starting to. Because my, my the only story I've, I've heard about like knowing what people watch was um, I think it's uh, it must have come straight from Netflix. I can't imagine it was is that. Uh, a few years ago, when they first put some, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation on on uh, on Netflix, and mm -hmm. it was the most viewed film that month. And it was sort of it was it was an article that was discussing what maturer viewers want to watch. This idea of the whole kind of four quadrant movie business of everything's mm -hmm. got to appeal to all four quadrants or we won't want to make it. And then what this guy was arguing was, well, here you go, look, there's an audience that really want to watch this, and we probably need more. And you can see it, can't you, in Netflix yeah. and, and Amazon Prime. The kind of content is, it's not, obviously, it's not all parallax viewing conversation, but certainly it's a lot more risk-taking in terms of its commerciality 
than yeah. than what we're seeing hitting the cinemas in the cinema a- genres. Absolutely, absolutely. If I had to guess, and this is really truly just a wild guess, go on. Uh, the reason the reason they're doing they're able to do that is because they're probably paying very little. Hmm. Uh, I think they're I think they're you know what you are seeing and and just anecdotally observationally as a Netflix viewer I see this is a lot of older movies coming on to, to Netflix hmm. uh, and I think I think one they're figuring out that there's a whole population that is comfortable viewing Netflix and is is looking for these movies that were part of their generation um, you know like parallax view like Three Days of the Condor, which I think showed on Netflix for a long, long time, and I've probably watched it half a dozen times. Mm. Uh, you know, like uh, like the conversation, um, but they but because they are so far along in their life cycle that they can pay a relative relatively small amount of money for the distribution rights for them, um, and so they can they can actually reap a pretty good reward. That again, that's purely a guess. Well, I guess TCM made made a living out of that for a long time, yeah. didn't it? As a station, it didn't. It yeah. never it never went for new films, did it? Because I guess they would have cost more money. Exactly, exactly. Same sort of model, and and I think also you know one of the things that Netflix obviously has going for it, and that's their business model, is big data, and so they do enormous amounts of analytics on their viewing mm-hmm. audience, and they you know they know how old we are, they know what we're watching, they know how much we make, et cetera, et cetera, and 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 then they're able to um, curate their their um, content. And that's the key, and that, I think that's where we're starting to see a real change. Uh, kind of really going off topic here, but you know the, oh, the idea that there's all this all this information out there, all this um, all these all these movies out there, and and you look at something like ne- like Netflix, um, and the 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 key to success is not the existence or the availability of the movies; it's the curation of the movies. How do I get the parallax view? In front of the eyeballs of the people who want to see the parallax view, mm. and and that's been the really tough nut to crack. That I think uh, Netflix um, and to an extent Amazon Prime as well. That you know, I think that's where they are starting to generate or, or gather enough data that they're getting better at that, and so they're able to kind of put hard numbers around. Um, you know, around types of movies, around types of audiences, and and be able to say, you know, I know that we're going to be able to, you know, have we're going to have a, a good chance of getting, I don't know, 2.3 million viewers to see the Parallax view in the six months that we're going to um, have the distribution, the the streaming distribution rights for it, hmm. uh, and we're, therefore we're going to pay X amount of money because for us, 2.3 million viewers per movie equates to X amount of money. And um, and so I think they're getting I think they're getting very good or, or at least better at that curation because I, I certainly remember when Netflix first started um, first started streaming um, to a lesser extent when it when it was just a DVD distribution but certainly when it first started streaming the hardest part was was kind of finding what you wanted to see no no um, sure sure the, the, other, the and, other thing that I, find, I think the flip side of this is that I guess let's say five ten years from now. Netflix will have an Amazon Prime and other streaming services like them are going to have metrics which will which will be able to tell a studio 
the point at which five... They'll be able to say, like, in a window of 90 seconds, three million people stopped watching this film yeah. and, ne and never went back to it. Now, that's going to be interesting data, isn't it, to people whose business it is to understand how to make money out of films yeah. somewhere down the line? Because DVDs have never been able to tell you that, but obviously if they're in charge of the... The, the the content providing and the and the viewing of it, then they've got yeah. that to hand. And unlike this, I'm going for a pee when you're at the cinema, which might be the same minute. <laughs> Netflix right. is going to know you switched it off, and Netflix also knows you never went back. Yeah, which is the more important thing that I think for and that that's know, that's scary. Yeah, and that's kind of because people might be saying you can't have a death scene unless it's before 17 minutes, and you're like going, why? Because Netflix said so. But anyway, I'm, I'm talking about a Philip K. Dick world there at the minute, and I'm hoping it yes. doesn't happen like that. <laughs> now, look, one, one last... I'll be talking for a while, so one last thing then. Just, 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 let's just unpack your the comment you made which on the Shadowland thing was the idea that, that horror's gone um, a bit upmarket. So you, you said that the sub-$1 million horror film is a hard sell, not impossible, but harder, and that the one point one to three million horror is is seemingly more viable when you've got the talent attached. Was that you seeing what films were about, or was that what you were being fed back in your conversations? And, and, and both. Okay. Yeah, both. Um, so, um, so kind of so so yeah very yeah especially especially to to some of the folks i think that are that are probably listening to the podcast this is really really relevant mm. the good news is that unlike the unlike almost any other genre horror will actually sell will still sell um based on genre meaning you don't have to have big names attached um, it makes it a lot easier if you do have a, a name, but it doesn't have to be a big name. Yeah. Um, because horror translates so well um, cross culturally. Um, comedy, obviously, uh, almost an impossible sell worldwide. It's so culturally specific. Drama, to an extent, as well. Action and horror, um, massive, massive big sellers. And really, what what AFM is very much focused on um, mm. family ho family films, horror films, and action films um, are are kind of the the seem to be the main focus of of AFM these days. Horror the the trouble with horror is because it is something that often can be filmed relatively low budget and still find a market is there's a lot of it out there. There's a glut of it. Um, it's, it's a lot of people make horror movies because it's seen as a way to get a film made and distributed without having to, you know, have $5 million in place or more. Also, also, I don't know. I mean, as someone that consumes them, having, you know, done reviews and things at big festivals and whatever that cover the genre, it's also the genre that's made by fans Exactly. And they're not always fans of cinema. So they're emulating what they think is horror, but not doing something that's got any cinematic quality. So therefore, its quality is not always the best. You can go, yeah, that was a great head-cutting scene. But to, <laughs> but, 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 to, but to get me there, it was like pulling my teeth out. And I don't mean yeah. that in the kind of marathon man way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you know, the things that sell horror are different than the things that sell other types of movies. Uh, and, and again, the, 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 that's that's good news, and I think that should be considered good news. And for those of us who who are making lower budget horror films, whether it's sub one million or one to three, mm. um, that's you know there, those things do those those opportunities do exist at AFM in particular. You're probably less likely. This this is what the the feedback I was getting from some of the folks I was talking to. Um, you're, it, it's the the lower you go below a million the harder it's going to be to sell. Um, probably primarily because um, the lower you go below a million, the lower your production values are going to be. And because there is so much competition, you are competing now with, with films that have better and better production value. It's, it's not just about the shock factor, which a generation ago was, you know, that's what it was. It was, you know, can I, can I get the best headshot? Can I... Um, you know, can I get the most disgusting disembowelment? Um, how how far can I push the envelope? Kind of thing. Um, the the production values have have increased because of the competition, and there's also just this this kind of perception, and I'm sure it goes hand in hand with all of that. That if it's less than a million dollars, you know, especially if it's less than five hundred thousand dollars, it's probably just not going to be any good. And that's completely unfair. But when somebody's kind of flipping through, you know, this big stack of things that they're going to have to watch, um, they're going to they're going to make prioritizations. I, 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 I think it's it's when when the, when a market gets saturated, um, like like the one you're describing has, then the worst elements of it get to become the perception, not and, and therefore. The opportunities to get the yeah. good stuff becomes harder harder because I've talked to people about you know just getting getting scripts sort of picked up, and if enough nutters send in scripts that are terrible, yeah, and and look like they've been done with green crayon and a five year old, <laughs> and that's what ends up being in your stack of scripts to read. In the end, you're not going to go to your unrepresented writers pile because you're fed up of yep. getting the green crayon one, even though there could be a Tarantino in there. Absolutely. You're going to wait for somebody else to tell you there's Tarantino in there than, yep. than, than look exactly. for yourself. And, and that's and, an unfortunate side of the. This is where the power, the, the power we've got now to produce, you know, you think, I mean, just a word processor versus a, versus a yeah. typewriter, final draft versus setting a page out yourself, that puts power back in our hands at little cost. But then that means that more people have got access to do it, which means we end up with a sweat. Exactly. Which, I mean, well, I think it's a good place to end, actually, because one of the things you said closing was you've got to have a hook. You've got to have yeah. something recognisable, Michael, which comes back to your kind of, obviously, you've got Ron Perlman with your movie, you've got Gabrielle as your director. These become things, and then you've got, then you've got, and the story is this, and then they go, wow, okay, those two elements plus, plus great story equals we want to help make this film get made versus I've got no talent, I've got no director you've heard of, I haven't even got a director yet, I've got a one-page synopsis here, a nice graphic of a monster. Yeah, and they go, "Well, take a walk, pal." You know, it's sort of. Yeah, and I know that's I'm being cra I'm being crass to be an extreme to prove the point, but, but I it's think, true. Which, yeah. which, which, which I think is you know it's, and because it, you like you say, where American filmmaking isn't about the art of filmmaking; it is about the business of filmmaking, and therefore, you're you're up against people that know. You know, down to the yeah. the two percent margins and the 
<laughs> oh how, yeah how to make That's... this twenty thousand dollar pre-sale make your film much more viable even though it sounds like a little you know there are people that know how to make that work <laughs> yes exactly exactly it really you know they they know those numbers they know their business model and that's who you're dealing with and so you know going you know kind of focusing on the afm element um that's the absolute key to going into afm is knowing that you are there as a business person and so you need to be prepared to talk about your project as a business person what is the financial viability of it what is the market value of it and, and not necessarily in the hard dollars and cents, because that's their job, but mm. being able to say, I, you know, here, as you said, here's the elements. Here's what's going to make this thing sell. Mm. And, and if you have a finished product, that's all the better. And, again, the, the nice thing is in horror these days more and more, because it's something that you can do lower budget, um, you know, maybe you can get in there with an actual finished product. Um, and that's going to that's gonna take you one step closer. But... Um, but, but knowing that you need something that's going to make you stand out from all the green crayon scripts and, and the equivalent green crayon, green crayon movies, mm. um, and that you have some marketing elements associated with your project, that there's something that a marketer can hang their hat on, whether it's a, a hook in the script or the story, whether it's a piece of, uh, of talent or whether, you know, an actor or a director, whether it's a track record that you have. Um, because if you have a track record of making $250,000 movies that make their money back, they'll love you. Because yeah, no. that's that's the asylum model right there. It doesn't have to be high budget. It has to make its money back. No, no. I've, se I've seen that. In me I've seen that in meetings where people have kind of took someone for granted and thought, "Well, who are you coming in here?" And then they go, "I made a two hundred thousand dollar movie and got it on IFC Digital, and we made three quarter of a million. And they go, yep. right, "Okay, that's profit. Now talk right. to me." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so you have to go into AFM, really into any market with that mentality, knowing that the markets are there, um, they're the business side of, of independent filmmaking. There's the wonderful creative side that we all love. And then there's the business side of trying to make a film that's going to be successful in the market, which doesn't mean $200 million. It means it made a profit. If you made a 15% profit on your movie, you did okay. If you made a 300% profit on your movie, like you said, $200,000 and I made back $700,000, that's that's great, and people are going to want to talk to you. So you got to figure out how to do that, and you got to recognize that for most of us anyway, it's going to be a process. It's going to be a series of stepping stones. You're going to make a $200,000 movie and make a profit. You're going to make a $400,000 movie and make a profit. You're going to make a million-dollar movie and make a profit, and people are going to be looking to give you money at that point because they know that you've got a track record and they trust you that you understand not only the creative but the business side of it and the flip side of what you're saying is that you you may go into that meeting thinking you know what is marketable and what is valuable and when these people start to say to you well this guy doesn't or this woman doesn't yep. or or it'd be better if you had that's you then having to learn that it's not to agree or disagree with them because Right. That, that's their position. There's no point. There isn't any value in you trying to convince them they're wrong because why would you be right. meeting them if you thought they were wrong? That's, that seems... So you're better, you're better going up on either deciding we're not for you or going, right, okay, we need to get some of that variable in 
into onto our plate to make us look more attractive. And then that's your less, that's the valuable that that becomes a valuable meeting, doesn't it? Because you then yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's it's all about building your knowledge and and understanding what the market wants. And if you find somebody like I was fortunate enough to find some people that are willing to just sit down and have that conversation with you, and and maybe that's a good place to kind of kind of close is to say, if you can find somebody just to have that conversation with you, these are these film markets are tremendously valuable. The time to do that is in the last couple days of the market. You're not going to get a walk in on the first. Two, three, four days of the market, because that's when they're actually all these sales agents are trying to sell to the distributors. Mm. That's who they want to talk to at that point. It's the last couple of days of the market when people are like just sitting at their desk and there's nobody really there and they're eating lunch or they're watching YouTube or something. And uh, you know, I had a number of those where they were like, "Yeah, sure, I've, you know, I've got 20 minutes till my next meeting. I'm kind of between meetings here. Come on in and let's talk." They're willing to give you the time. So again, that's what goes back. We said early on that that sort of Timing luck element. You catch somebody in between meetings, you're more likely to do that at the at the close of the festival than at the at the beginning of the festival. And and if you're prepared and and ready to grasp an opportunity that presents itself, that's where the you know you get the combination of preparation and luck, and maybe something magical happens. Well, look, Carrie, thank you very much for uh, coming on the Britflix podcast to give us your. Uh, your experience and observations of this year's American film market, as well as telling us all about your project, the Caddy. It sounds it sounds really exciting, and we wish you all the very best of luck with uh, your follow-up from AFM and you get your package that gets you the green light. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to me blab on a bit. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 